welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Uh, we've been doing this ongoing series called Artists in Residence. We've had people of our community and outside our community that are just artists that we believe in, want to support, and want to just bring in to inform our community, to be a part of our worship experience. Uh, and so our new artist residence is Phil Schmidt. We're super excited about that. And uh, it's just an opportunity for our worship experience to go to the next level, to expand in different ways. We hear, we hear a lot of music. We hear a lot of different things that we normally do on a, on a gathering. But uh, when we bring in artists, they're, they're able to help bring something totally new to us, something if we open up to that. Um, I heard a good quote that uh, some politicians were saying. Some pol- politicians respond to change, uh, respond to culture, but artists create culture. Whether or not you believe that, I, I think artists really do have an influence in how we kind of interact and how we view view things and view God, too. So, Phil uh, is here with us. Can you guys give him a hand? He's, uh, Thanks. Hello, hello. And, uh, Phil, why don't you tell us a little bit about your story? Cool. Hey, thank you, by the way, for having me, Ben, and Awaken Community. I really appreciate it. I think I messed it up. Yeah. All right. Well, again, thank you for having me up here. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. My name is Phil Schmidt. I am a potter, uh, which means I like to make things out of clay and throw things on the wheel specifically. Um, just a, a background on me. I went to college at Bethel and went in with a uh, medical uh, kind of a, a push for the medical field and, and went in that way, uh, following my brother, actually my older brother. Uh, took me a little while, but I figured out I did not like it. Did not want to go to med school, could not stand uh, chemistry specifically. Uh, yeah, found out I was just different and learned to realize that, and that was a big experience in college for me. So I turned around, went to art uh, through a lot of prayer. Um, and then kind of looking back on, on my life, I've always been inventive and creative, always making random things like, for example, paper airplanes. Uh, you can, you know, fold the regular ones and throw them, but I would, I would fold the regular ones, throw them, see how they flew, and then add like a bi-wing or like what happens when you extend the tail and, oh, let's, let's fold the wing a different way and always doing just crazy things. Um, and another thing, I love cooking, and I see a lot of similarities in, in making pottery and making a meal. Uh, and it's actually cool that you can combine the two as well. Um, a lot of the, you know, the chopping and, and such like that, where you're actually throwing the pot too, they're just, you know, chopping carrots and, and throwing a, a cup. They're just, there's a lot of similarities that are really cool. So, That's awesome. And uh, would you tell us a little bit about your art and uh, anything you want to say about that? Yeah, thanks. My art is very one-of-a-kind uh, functional pottery, meaning it's dishwasher safe. You know, it's completely functional. The, the cups aren't going to leach any bad chemicals, if you've ever heard that. I hear it a lot as a potter, so maybe you haven't. I don't know. Um, so it's one-of-a-kind functional pottery. Um, I really like to let the clay just be and, and be what it is. Uh, I try not to push it where... I want it to go. I try to see what it's letting me do and just go with it. And it's actually a really big struggle, but uh, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to do that too. And you get a lot of sweet surprises with uh, what you're making. Um, a huge part of it is function for me. I love how things function and work. And um, my pottery speaks a lot about that. 
And I, I feel like pottery is really approachable too. It's, it's an approachable art. People can use it. People can approach it, touch it. Um, you got to touch the pots and you got to pick them up and feel them. I'm all about, um, like I paddle my pieces and I want you, it's it just, they, they beg to be picked up and touched and, and, and felt and experienced. So. Yeah, there's something neat about when art is useful and functional and, and has that kind of aspect in your life. It's cool. How would you say uh, your spiritual life and your art have intersected? Uh, this is a, a good question and a tricky one. Uh, let me go to my notes, my, my cheat sheet here. You know, God, God has given me the ability to, to make. I'm a maker. Um, I'm a creator. I create things. And I just, I get energy from that. I, I'm, always, I'm always doing it, sometimes not even realizing it, you know. It's just, I just love making things. Um, and for that, really, that's just, that's worship for me. I'm, I'm doing what God has made me to do, and, and I'm just, I'm, I'm having fun with it. And it's, um, it can be really tough sometimes. It can be really great sometimes. There are highs and lows in that. But um, I really find that I worship through just trying to make things and do things. And I, I do, you know, one way is, is pottery. Another way sometimes is even making the shelving units that I, that I hold my pottery on or that sort of thing. And just doing the best that I can at it. Um, yeah, so I love making, and, and making for me can be, really be worshiping. Cool, and you were also mentioning that you'd love for the community to use the, the pottery. You want to mention something about that? Yes. Please use the cups and mugs that are over there. They're uh, set up, hopefully, so they're easy to grab and all that. They're just, they're freshly clean, so don't worry about that if you're a germ freak. I don't know, but uh, they're, they're all ready to use. And then, um, of course, everything is for, for sale as well. If you, if you want to pick something up, that's cool. Um, after, the, after the service or something, we can, we can talk. Uh, but, yeah, please use it, especially if you're, you're sipping from a plastic cup or something. Just go experience it. I'm not pressuring you to buy it or anything. I just would really like you to experience pottery, and it's, it's, uh, it's really fun to use. So. Cool. So there's the dirty dishes bin over there. there so you can, yeah. you can fill up your coffee and throw it in there. So cool. thanks. Let's give Phil a hand. How's it going? <laughs> My name's Micah, and uh, I love the Bible. So if you don't have one, there are Bibles back there. Um, if you like to knit, by the way, there's some knitting projects going over there. And uh, I got myself a cup. I'm going to try this out. That's nice. Very nice. Very nice. Okay, so here's the deal. We're in a new series today and uh, called All of the Above. Uh, this, the book of Esther... Um, 
is, is a great book, and, and uh, this week I spent a ton of time studying and reading, and if you, if you saw anything posted on Twitter or Facebook or, or uh, any of those places, uh, this, this message sort of like was a runaway train for me. Um, I couldn't rein it in, so I'm going to try and do that this morning for your sake. Uh, the more I read and the more I studied, the larger this thing got, and then I had to take it to the chopping, the, the cutting room, and uh, there's a lot on the floor back there. Um, so I hope that today um, fits with, uh, with where we planned it to go, but I certainly uh, want to invite uh, God's Spirit to, to get involved as well. Um, so here's what I want to do today. I want to start this series by giving some background about who is Esther, what was Esther, what kind of book is it, uh, who was it written to, who was it written by, uh, all important questions as we open up a new book and try to study it and learn from it. Um, and then I want to move to some of the difficulties of the book of Esther. Um, because quite frankly, as I read and as I studied more and really got into this, it, be, it dawned on me that there is, um, there's a lot below the surface of Esther. And so there are some really, really challenging, I think really challenging ideas and concepts. And um, as we kind of wrestle with some of them, I think even... Uh, the idea uh, uh, as, as to what is this book and um, how is it authoritative, uh, insp- inspired, all of those kinds of words. Um, not up for grabs, but certainly we want to wrestle with. And then I want to land on a particular issue that comes to the surface when you start to get into the book of Esther. Um, and we wanted to try to create some space this morning for a bit of reflection as we get to that. And so that will hopefully make sense in a few moments. So without any further ado... Um, Why don't we start with just a little bit of background about Esther. Here's a quote um, from an author that I read. They said this, In short, this story unveils the dark passions of the human heart, envy, hatred, fear, anger, pride, and vindictiveness, and all of these come together in an intense nationalism. A more human story has never been written, and yet in the midst of it all, there is this providence of him whose purposes in history are not ultimately dependent upon either what men do or are. So the book of Esther, right, just to, uh, if you've never read it before, and by the way, we're not going to get into a ton of the actual text as in, the, in the next eight to ten weeks or so we will, but I encourage you to just begin reading this story over and over, let it sink in. Um, in, 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 a, in a thumbnail sketch, the book of Esther is this, it's about a girl uh, who becomes queen, and uh, uh, in, a, in a foreign land, she becomes queen of a foreign nation, she's Jewish, she hides her identity, keeps it secret. Uh, and then through a number, a course of different events, there's a group of people who are plotting to kill the Jews, the Jews, and uh, that gets exposed, and the bad guys get killed, and the good guys win in the end, and then there's this huge party at the end. So that's kind of like Esther in a nutshell, right? Uh, it's this really sweet story about a teenage girl who steps out in faith. There's this great line at the end of chapter four. She says, "If I perish, I perish. Like if I, if it's, if this is it for me, then this is it for me." And yet she steps out in faith, and God uses her to save her people. And then to, and then there's this, this huge celebration called Purim, which is actually a Jewish festival to this day, and it's probably the most. Um, uh, carnival-esque, it's the most grandiose, it's the most verbose of any of the festivals, and it's really just about like a big party, uh, and so that happens at the end of the book, and so that's kind of what it is uh, on the surface, and yet if you scratch just below the surface, you begin to find that there are all kinds of things, and I was the kind of kid, some of you know I grew up with, with four brothers, and I had an older brother, and uh, he, uh, of course, had all the cool clothes, and all the cool shoes, and all the cool everything, because he was the firstborn, right? 
And uh, he would say, do not wear my shirts. T-shirts are really big for guys. Ladies, if you don't know this, you will someday if you, if you end up marrying one. T-shirts are a big deal. So he had all these T-shirts, you know, all the cool T-shirts. And he would say before he left for school, do not wear my clothes. And I'd be like, totally, dude, no problem, 100%. Aye, aye, Captain, right? And like as soon as he left, I'd go rooting through all of his stuff trying to find the best shirt. And then I would have to get home before him, take it off and fold it and put it back in his drawer before he got home. Because if I didn't, of course, you know what would happen. It was just like beat down central. And uh, but so, you know, you tell me not to scratch on the surface and see what, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. So that's what I've done. Uh, and, and, and I think there will be some interesting things that we'll, we'll discuss. Uh, here's just a few of the church fathers, some of the folks who have gone before us in the faith. Uh, some people, uh, hopefully you'll recognize, Martin Luther, one of the largest, one of the biggest critics of the book of Esther. He says this. He said, uh, he, he kind of headed the attack against it in the Protestant Reformation. He said, I wish that it did not exist at all, for it Judaizes too much, and it has in it too much pagan naughtiness. <laughs> oh, man, that's great. Did anybody, no, Okay. I'm going to go there. Uh, this last week, I posted something about my hair, and I, see, uh, did anyone see that one? Anyone see that? No. Okay, great. One of you, one of you, then I'm not going to talk about it. There's another guy named Erasmus. He was another uh, church father. He says this. On the other side, he says this. It's more, or, or he actually agrees with Luther, excuse me. It is more worthy than all the apocryphal books of being excluded from the canon. Okay. <laughs> This is one of our church fathers who have gone before us who says, Esther, of all the apocryphal books, I think that one should be kicked out of the canon. 66 books that we call the Bible, right? The Word of God. The Word of God. The inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. And one of our own fathers of church history says, I think you should take that one out. Some scholars, both ends of the spectrum. I mean, you have people who love it. You have people who, who hate it. Here's just a, a, a litmus test to, to show uh, one of each. One guy named Pfeiffer says he sees no religious values in the book at all. To him, it's the work of a fanatic nationalistic Jew who delighted in the barbaric massacre of defenseless Gentiles. So at the end of the book, when the bad guys who are going to kill the Jews when the plot gets exposed, right... Um, they make another edict, the king makes another edict, and it says, like, annihilate all of the Gentiles that, that agreed with this thing, and they, they kill all these people. Uh, one other scholar, he kind of takes a different viewpoint on it. He says, uh, this guy named Payne, he declares that Esther was an example of courage, piety, and devotion, that the violence of the Jews had ethical justification. It was just war, friends, just war. In that, it was necessary for the preservation of God's people against their enemies. So you have all kinds of different views on this little book. How many of you thought, oh, great, I love the story of Esther when we, when we said we were going to teach this, go through this. And yeah, yeah, it's a great little book, you know. It's, you know, girl, I perish, I perish, like, go for it, you know, go for the hell. This, is, uh, this, is, this gets tricky real quick. Um, so those are just a few of the outside, you know, outlying um, perspectives on the book of Esther. Who wrote the book of Esther? In some of the books of the Bible, you know, Matthew wrote Matthew. Luke wrote Luke. Luke wrote Acts, too, by the way. Uh, John wrote John. Paul wrote the epistles, so on and so forth. It's pretty easy, right? Hebrews, that's a little dicey. Not a lot of people know. Um, a, lot of, a lot of views. Esther, 
there's just no way that anybody can get to the bottom of who wrote the book of Esther. So um, scholars debate, go back and forth, they waste a lot of ink, and nobody has had any kind of real conclusion that said, I put this forward, and a bunch of people said, yeah, that's really good scholarship, that's really good history and research. It's up for grabs. Nobody really knows who wrote the book of Esther. When was it written? This is more important than I would say who wrote it. Uh, and in order to understand when it was written, or, or uh, I think it's really important for us to understand, we've got to back up a little bit to understand the history of the Jews in order to really place this on the landscape of things. So there's a phrase called the diaspora. For, uh, for those of you that don't know, it's a, a word that means the dispersion, or uh, it was essentially when the Jews were dispersed out from the land that God had given them. So we've got to back all the way up into almost 1,000 B.C., for those of you that remember the story, uh, the Jewish people, the Israelites, began with Abraham, Father Abraham, I am many sons, I am one of them. Uh, God says, I'll bless you to be, be a blessing to the world. The Jews become this group of people, and, um, and they're growing, growing, you know, the, the promise is true, as many as the sands are on the seashore. And then they say, we want a king, right? Because they're looking around all across to their neighbors and the people around them, and they say, we want a king. Everybody else has got a king, and God says, I'm your king. You don't need a king, but they keep pushing, pushing, pushing. And like God does, he accommodates, right? This is God's accommodating will. It wasn't what he wanted, which is a whole nother sermon, a whole nother deal, but he accommodates, and he says, okay, fine. So he gives them a king, and things start to go badly. The, the, and in 930, this was the beginning, really, of the dispersion. Because at this point, the Jews had taken the land. They were in the land for the most part. They didn't really do it the way they are supposed to. But be that as it may, they're in the land. And then in 930, a group of people called the... Um, uh, the, or, excuse me, the kingdom is divided. So uh, king, Israel becomes two different kingdoms. Ten northern tribes, two southern tribes. Israel and Judah. So the, the tribes, or the Israel's divided in 930, and then in 720, a group of people called the Assyrians come in, and they, you know, seize the northern kingdom, which is Israel. So they ca take captive the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, and then one of the more famous ones in 586, a group called the Babylonians come in, and they take over, they conquer the southern tribes, the two, is, uh, Judah, and so then the Babylonians are in charge. And at this point, Jews are being deported all over the ancient Near East. So they're no longer centralized in the land, but they're being moved to all kinds of different places. And this is the beginning of the diaspora, when the Jews are dispersed throughout the ancient Near East. So 586, the Babylonians. And then this is where Esther starts to come into play. In 538, a group of people called the Persians come in. If you've heard of Darius, the, uh, the Medes and the Persians, these guys come in and they conquer the Babylonians, and now they're in charge. So this is where the books of Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, you remember when the Jews got to come back and rebuild the wall? This is all happening in this time frame, all right? Then further down, 332, you remember a guy named Alexander the Great? He comes in, and the Greeks conquer the land, and so now they're in charge. And then, of course, when we get to the time of Jesus, about 63, uh, a guy named Pompey comes in, and the Romans capture, and, and they are now in charge of, of the landscape. So that's kind of the lay of the land as far as how everything went down in the dispersion of the Jews. Esther finds its place somewhere between 400 and 300 B.C. B.C.E., I guess it's called, right? Uh, that's, that's the dating, as best as anybody can tell. And the real important piece to this is, is really who was in charge, who was, the, who was captive, who were the captors, and it was the Medes and the Persians, all right? Um, so what's the purpose of the book? If there's a purpose at all, what is it? And I would offer two thoughts. One would be really kind of a Jewish uh, connection, and the other would just be an uh, overarching theme of the book. The first, um, it's, the, it is the, it's the beginning of, it's the text by which the Jews celebrate the, the festival of Purim. 
So at the end of this book in chapter 10, 11 or so, uh, Purim is kind of introduced, and this is, and this is hugely debated among Jewish people, um, maybe not so much now, but certainly when, it, when they were deciding, should we celebrate this or not? Because some of, the, some of the Jews were like, this isn't even canonical. This isn't even in the scriptures. This book should be thrown out. There's hardly any mention of religious things, blah, blah, blah. There's no mention of, of kosher in it. And so the Jews had a hard time with it. And so finally when they decided to, this becomes the basis by which they celebrate this festival of Purim. Secondly, uh, it's essentially this... this um, it highlights the covenant relationship between God and Israel, right? So if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, and you have God saying to Israel, I will bless you, you will be a blessing, so on and so forth, I'm covenanting to you. This book highlights the covenant relationship between God and Israel, that God would always care for, always protect, always have a remnant in Israel. So now again, on the surface, this is a pretty straightforward book. It's about a girl, she steps forward, she's the queen, saves the day, blah, blah, blah. But... What happens when you start digging? Now, if I, you had seatbelts in your chairs, I would ask you to buckle them. But you don't have them, so I'm just going to say, hang on, okay? Because this is where I'm about to turn over the apple cart. For the record, my newly potted mug, touch the pot. <laughs> There's no Persian queen named Esther in history. Go back in the history books. There is no Persian queen named Esther. Not in Persian history. Not in world history. She doesn't exist. Queens did not come from ethnic minorities. So if you're in the Persian kingdom, the queen you would not have would be a teenage Jewish girl from an ethnic minority that you were captive over, that you were holding captive, that you controlled. Okay? This is unprecedented. It does not happen. Um, kings. Okay? For the record, kings usually don't hold a beauty pageant when they want to elect a new queen. I mean, seriously. You look at chapter 1, Vashti, the queen of Persia, gets kicked out because she won't parade herself half-naked in front of a bunch of drunk guys. She gets kicked out of the kingdom, and then they hold a beauty pageant. Literally, a beauty pageant. There's a, everybody, send out the memo to the kingdom, get all the pretty girls, all the single ladies. Oh, this, is the, this is Beyonce's inspiration, guys. Get all the single ladies and bring them in. We're going to give them beauty treatments for a year. We're going to dress them up, give them all the fancy, you know, cucumbers on their eyes and mud on their face and all the things that crazy people do to make them. And then after that, parade them in front of the king and the king's going to pick the prettiest one and she's going to be the new king. That is ridiculous from a historical perspective. Would not and has not and did not happen, historically. Um, the behavior of Xerxes, the, ki the king of Persia, for crying out loud, the king of Persia, this mighty army who waltzes in and kicks out the Babylonians, who are no small, these are not chumps, right? These are, this is a powerful, these are the superpowers of the world. The king 
the president of the United States says, you know what? Um, I don't really want to make a decision on whether or not we should have a vice president. So tell you what, you guys, just figure it out. Just make a decision and then come back to me and let me know what your idea is and then I'll sign off on it if I think it's a good idea. This is what happens, right? The edict to annihilate the Jewish people does not come from the king. It comes from a bunch of underlings. All the way through the book, the king of Persia acts like a minion. He acts like, um, he acts like a fool. He does things that a king would never do, ever. Just doesn't happen. Furthermore, the idea to annihilate the Jews. Like, let's just kill them all. Okay? Historically, what we do know is that the only group of people who had the Jews captive, captive, who let them go back to their land and rebuild the wall, was who? The Persians. So the only group of people that, that captured the Jewish people and held them captive, who like let them be in their land, um, maybe the best, I don't know how you would say that, but they, they, they gave them the most leniency to, to be Jewish people. They let them go back to their land and rebuild the temple, this, this sacred you know, worship space for them. The only group of people that did that was the Persians. And now, in a book called Esther, we have the Persians saying, uh, flippantly, like, let's just kill them all. Makes zero sense, right? Finally, no, no, I've got two more. Esther, the entire book, the entire book of Esther hangs the plot itself on the fact that Esther's identity is kept secret, right? She's a Jew. <laughs> she becomes queen, and now they're going to kill all the Jews. So she keeps her identity secret because she doesn't want to say, oh, hey, BT dubs, I'm with them, <laughs> right? So she keeps her identity secret, but everybody knows in the book that she's connected to who? Her, her uncle, her cousin, uncle, her uncle, Mordecai, Mordecai, and everybody knows he's Jewish, gang. So the whole story hangs on the fact that Esther keeps her identity secret, and everybody knows she's Mordecai's niece. Mordecai's Jewish. It's not that hard to figure out, right? I mean... They didn't do things the way we do things now. I mean, in this day and age, maybe you could, yeah. Yeah, you could be Jewish. Your niece could be something totally different. Probably not the case back then, right? So the whole plot of the story hangs on an absolutely ridiculous notion. Finally, friends, open your Bibles if you don't have them yet. Esther, turn on your phones. Somebody tell me how many chapters are in the book of Esther. Ten. So I was a little off, sorry. I said eleven. Ten. There's ten. There, in your version, I won't make you count them right now, but more, more, most likely, or very, very close, there are 270 verses in Esther, in your Bible, the Word of God, which is in your hands right now. Do you know how many verses were in the original manuscript? of Esther. 
the, the Masoretic text that was translated into Greek that was called the Septuagint. More or less? Less by a lot. 170. Hello, Joe. Got a problem. What do you do with that? In the original text, I mean, I could, I could see maybe adding a couple thoughts here and there, you know, a few redactions along the way. 163 verses in the original. Two, that's, a, that's 107 more verses. That's like nearly half the book. <laughs> For crying out loud. Who's the extra guy and, who's, and what's he writing about? And why do we not have this information? Gang, this is big, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but that is a bit problematic for me. So tell you what, why don't you turn to your friends and talk for a while and figure out what are you going to do with the book of Esther? No? No? Maybe not? <laughs> okay, I've totally set you up. Here's the thing. I hope that what you're feeling right now is a little angst, a little, anx a little anxiety, because what this is important. This is very, very important, because we talk about the Word of God. We talk about the Scriptures, and it's this, it's this really important thing, and it's infallible, and it's inerrant, and by the way, those words didn't come on the scene until like the 19th, 18th century, but that's okay. So it's this really important book, and it's, and it's, and it's like our, our guide to life, and, and, and as Christians, it's at the center of who we are. And yet, there are all these discrepancies in it. Do you understand why people have a problem, um, while, pe while people are skeptical? People, if you do any studying about the scriptures, you begin to see that like, uh, there's an addition to the end of Luke, I think. Um, there's a part of John that's not in the... I mean, they're legion. They're all over the place. So, particularly connected to Esther, a few interpretive keys I want to offer. As we move forward and as we kind of work through this book, I want to offer a framework and a grid that I hope will help us interpret this and help us understand this book, but will also give us a little bit of hope that while all of these things are true, that maybe Esther wasn't actually a real person, that's okay. And that at the end of the day, that's okay. It doesn't have to throw everything off. It doesn't have to kill us. It doesn't have to, you know... Uh, my faith is now gone. A few interpretive keys. Number one, I would say this. Don't make the text answer questions it has no answers to or that it didn't intend to answer. Don't make the text answer questions that it never intended to answer. What I mean by that is this. Esther is not a historically documented story. Okay? More likely than not, it did not actually happen in history that way. Okay? That doesn't mean that we throw it out the window and it has no value or that it's not a part of the canon anymore. What it means is that it's a particular piece of literature. It's a particular type of literature, and it, and it intends to do something because it's in that genre or in that category. Some people would call it historical narrative, right? They, 
there are historical pieces that you could, you could research and find, yeah, that's true about Persia and that's true about their culture. And absolutely it is. And the person who wrote this book set the story in that historical culture because that's what they wanted to say, right? The, the, sto- the show 24, one of my favorite shows, right? That's not true, right? We know that's not true, but there's historical pieces to the story in 24 that are absolutely spot on. The White House, uh, physical locations, even people or offices that people hold, they use those, but they tell a story for a different purpose. So don't make the text answer questions that it doesn't intend to answer, okay? So if we come to this and we say, well, well, what about the history of this? Well, let's find Esther in history. You can't, and you, you're not supposed to, That's not the point. So don't make the text answer questions it's not supposed to. Secondly, I would say I want to challenge our notion of history equals truth, right? Or or maybe you could say it this way or spin it a little differently. Scientific equals truth or data equals truth, right? We live in a culture where these things, historical, scientific, data, propositions like these are really important because they equal truth if we get the right ones lined up then we can say that's true about that i want you i want to challenge our notion of historical equals truth because this book is not historically accurate it's just not but it doesn't mean that it doesn't communicate truth about who god is and what it means to be the people of god it's just not answering those questions Third, I would say, everything in Esther, and this is where the, the, the actual genre of Esther, we kind of play it out. Je- uh, Esther is really, it's like a farce. It's a, it's a comedy. It's everything is bigger and everything is exaggerated. That's why the king of Persia acts like such a buffoon, right? Because everybody listening to the story would go, oh gosh, that's hilarious. He would never do that, right? Have you ever been to a show or a theater, uh, a, a, a play where there's a character who's just an absolute moron, Right? And everyone's like, man, it's like he's totally over the top. Yeah, that's exactly it. The the book of Esther fits in that category where everything in it is over the top. Everything is exaggerated. The number of provinces in Persia is exaggerated. The number of parties that they have is exaggerated. The number of people that they send out the memo to is exaggerated. Xerxes is exaggerated. Mordecai is exaggerated. Everybody is exaggerated to, to make a point. Last As far as interpretive keys, I would say this. Think in terms of lessons, not details. When we go to this book, what we're not going to be doing is mining it for details about historical things, not what Esther is doing. As we wrap up this morning, I want to highlight one thing. And I'm going to land in this particular spot, and we're going to just give some space for this. Um... Our version of Esther has 270 verses of it. The original manuscripts have 163 verses in it. Does anyone know why? What's missing in the original book of Esther? God. The name of God is never mentioned in the original text. So, God whom this book is really supposed to be about is never mentioned in the original text. What's added was a whole bunch of people who were really uncomfortable with that and added all of the mention of God that we have in Esther. And it took them 107 verses to do it. 
So, God is absent in Esther, at least on the surface. I'm wondering if anybody in the room can relate. If you've ever been in a season of life where you felt like God is absent, when you were knocking on the door, seek and you shall find, knock and the door will be opened, and all these things, and you knocked and knocked and knocked and knocked, and I'm wondering if there's anybody in the room who things aren't working out with their kids and they're making terrible choices and they claimed the verse that if you train up a child in the way of the Lord, he will not depart from it. And you're sitting there going, what the heck? Or fill in whatever blank you would want to fill in there to God. I thought that was supposed to be true. Where are you now? I'm wondering if there's anybody in the room who doesn't have a job and who's been just banging the pavement. Or maybe you do have a job and you just can't sell anything. And you pray and you pray and you pray and you pray. God, I, like, if I'm supposed to provide for my family, really could use some help here. And nothing. Silence. Or you surrender to God and you say, I will go wherever you want me to go. I will do whatever you want me to do. And you lean in. Isaiah says, turn your ear to hear. And you hear nothing. Maybe it's just me. But I have a sneaky suspicion that it's not. There are moments, there are times, there are seasons in life when it, it would appear that God is absent. But he is not. He has left the building. I'm going to ask Ben and... Uh, the worship team to come up, and we want to create some space for you to listen, for you to be silent, and you're going to hear a song um, that they're going to lead us through. Uh, I just encourage you to listen. I don't even think the words will be on the screen, but either way, um, and I want you to just sit, um, listen, and then it's going to be just dead silent for a little bit. Because we want to be the kind of community that, that recognizes that this is true, that this is part of the experience of faith, that it's not always easy, that it's not, the answers will not always come to you in glowing neon lights or written in the sky or even from the word of God when you think that they will. And you can knock and knock and knock and knock and sometimes it just sounds like you hear nothing. And that's part of faith. That's part of walking. That's part of following Jesus. And so we want to be a community that recognizes that, that doesn't, that doesn't put a Band-Aid on it and say, you know what, if you just knock a little harder, you'll hear. If you just have a little more faith, you'll hear. Because that's, I would say something that I wouldn't say because it's church. <coughs> that's lame advice, <coughs> and it's mean. Because this is part of the experience. And so... Um, we want to just create a bit of that this morning, and um, wherever this finds you, um, don't run. Just let it be. The Beatles said it best, right?
find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.